1955, uh, the Reverend Billy Graham, the great evangelist, uh, was speaking to a group, and this was about 16 years before Memorial Day became a national holiday on our calendar. And here's what Billy Graham was talking about. He said he remembered that he stood in a, a Danish ship's hospital quarter, uh, in, anchored in Korean waters, standing beside an American military serviceman, about 20 years of age, he said. And he said, I watched helplessly as this young man's life ebbed away. And I thought, what right have thousands of pleasure-seeking Americans to go on living when this lad in the early flower of his youth is going to die? But he said, in that moment, the fact dawned on me that if he had to die for America, some of us must live for America. Sometimes it's far more difficult to live than it is to die because we've been handed a torch and we have the responsibility to see that those who have died have not died in vain, end quote. But I think the sad truth is that many Americans take their freedoms for granted, especially in this day and time. I don't think we quite grasp the significance of what we will lose if we lose the freedoms that we have. And as followers of Christ, those freedoms are especially precious. Let me give you an example. Uh, the United States State Department issued its first report on persecution in nations across our globe since COVID. During COVID, everything quieted down and the State Department did not have the, as much liberty to uh, investigate abuses of power and oppressions of people of faith across the globe. But now that they do, they've reported, and of course, the worst of all, as usual, is North Korea. And understanding North Korea is an extreme, as an extreme, it gives us an understanding of what could happen if a nation loses the freedom of conscience, that is, to believe what you want to believe under government control. Right now, the State Department says right now, there are about 70,000 people imprisoned in North Korea because of their faith. 90% or so of those are Christians, professing Christians. Because in North Korea, the most vulnerable person and the lowest class of person in North Korea is a professing Christian. The most dangerous thing you can do in your life in North Korea is profess to be a Christian. And it's not only dangerous for you, it's dangerous for your entire family. And the State Department said they found out that during the, the lockdowns during COVID, they found out coming out of COVID, that someone uh, in North Korea was discovered with a Bible. So not only were they imprisoned for life in a work camp in North Korea right now, their whole family was imprisoned for life and is right now in a work camp in North Korea all the way down to a two-year-old child. That two-year-old child is imprisoned for life because someone in their family owned a Bible. That child will never see freedom and because of the abuses that take place in those work camps, that child will probably never become an adult either. Americans can't take for granted their freedoms, but Christians, we must protect those freedoms as well. The freedom of conscience is the freedom to believe what God gives you, tells you to believe, and that's under attack in our country. Uh, freedom of speech is under attack in our country. That's precious to us. Freedom of speech is the reason I can do what I'm doing right now. And without that freedom, 
there may come a time when we're not seeing this. We're not sitting together. We're not fellowshipping together. We're not hearing the word of God. So Memorial Day, we remember the sacrifices of the people who have served, lived, and died to perfect, protect those freedoms. And the family members uh, that, that their beloved never came home. But we also remember that as Christians, those freedoms are so precious to us. Even so, we proclaim that no matter what, we will serve Christ. No matter what, we will serve Christ. Don't take our freedoms for granted, but never take for granted what Christ has done for you. Setting you free, setting me free from sin and death, never take for granted that every sacrifice we remember points to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our God who came in the flesh and died on the cross for us and who is alive today. Return with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is going to start talking about who we are as a church. Now remember, he's writing to persecuted Christians in his day and time. Many who would suffer for their faith. And ultimately, just a few years past the time he wrote this letter, Peter himself uh, would be executed in Rome because he was a Christian and the leader of the Christian church. As we turn this corner, Peter is going to call to mind all kinds of images. That God, images of what God has fulfilled in Christ and therefore fulfilled in the church. He's going to remind us over and over who we are matters more than where we are, or even where we live and what we're doing. Who we are, we are the people of God in Jesus Christ. We are spiritually the church of God on earth. We are God's people on earth. So as we turn the corner into, into 1 Peter chapter 2, he's going to talk this time and next time, which will be in a few weeks. Next week, our graduate Sunday, I'm going to turn our attention to our graduates, and then a few weeks after that, we'll return to 1 Peter. But we see some groundwork this morning for an understanding of who we are as God's church and why that's so precious to us and why that's, why that's established on the sacrifice of Christ for us as well. One of the things you're going to see happen is Peter resonates, calls to mind and, and, and loves the, his Old Testament, his Word of God, his Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, his Hebrew Bible up to that point. In 2018, Pastor Andy Stanley wrote a book called Irresistible in which he stated that Christians today should unhitch themselves from the Old Testament, that we refer to the Old Testament too much, that we talk about the narratives and the stories and the theology of the Old Testament too much. I think the Apostle Peter would disagree with him because Peter will show us in order to understand us as the church who we are in Christ. In order to understand Jesus Christ himself, it, you need to occasionally take a dive into the teaching of God, the history of God revealed in the Old Testament where God prophesies the coming of Jesus Christ. And, and in the passage we're going to read this morning, Peter uses a particular image uh, that, that peppers Scripture all throughout the Bible, beginning in the Old Testament, this particular image, because prophetically he knows now would ultimately apply to Jesus Christ, the Christ of God, the coming Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, that those images apply to him. So look here with me in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start reading at verse 4 this morning. As God reminds us of this simple truth, and you can tuck this truth away, this is God's reminder this morning, 
that just as the world rejected Christ, the world will reject you. But just as God the Father accepted Christ, the world, God the Father will accept you in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter says, So as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built up to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. Before the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. And a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. Now, it's not hard to see the image that Peter evokes. It's the cornerstone. It's the cornerstone. In the ancient world, the cornerstone was the most significant part of the building. Uh, and workers, builders, would quarry that stone and look for a stone that would fit exactly where they needed it to go because the rest of the building is built on the cornerstone. And the rest of the building requires the integrity of the cornerstone. It must be precise it must be crafted exactly to fit. In many ways, you could say it must be perfect. So it wasn't uncommon for the builders to receive a stone from the quarry and reject that stone as the cornerstone. It may fit somewhere else, but it's rejected as the cornerstone. It does not work because it does not fit. It's not perfect. And because it doesn't have the integrity necessary for the rest of the building to be built on that cornerstone. It didn't take long for God to start using that as an image of himself and then ultimately as an image of Jesus Christ. The oldest book you have in your Bible is the book of Job. In the book of Job, God at the end of the book of Job in chapter 38 is talking to Job about his ails and struggles and his crying out to God and his faithfulness to God. And he reminds Job who he is. And in part, God says to Job, speaking of the world that's been created, he says to Job, who laid its cornerstone? Well, obviously God did. God is the one that put the cornerstone in for all creation and therefore built everything from there. God is the one that had the perfect blueprint and the perfect cornerstone to build on. Then in the book of Psalms, Psalm 118, verse 22, a, a passage that Peter himself calls to mind. The Bible is now... Uh, attributing that cornerstone to the Savior that would come, to the Messiah, to the Christ, that would in fact be Jesus Christ. And the writer says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief corner stone. That's what Peter calls to mind in this passage when he says Christ is the cornerstone, the living stone, and you and I are spiritual stones, living stones, we are built as the temple of God on the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Let's unpack it just a little bit more. He calls him the living stone. That is, he is the resurrected Christ. And because he's the living cornerstone, the living stone on which the church is built, all of the church through all of the ages will be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. It means that he is sufficient and he is powerful and he is alive and he is capable that all the church for every generation can rest on the integrity 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. And it also means any assembly or fellowship that calls itself a church but is anything other than resting in belief and faith on the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's not a church. That's not the temple of God. That's not the people of God. Jesus Christ is the foundation, the cornerstone, the living stone for the people of God. And he specifies the reason for that. Second is that the living stone, Jesus Christ, is chosen of God, honored by God. The term means precious to God. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed God the Father in going to the cross and God raised him from the grave. God fulfilled everything in Christ. There is no other cornerstone. God is not saying, well, you can go to that religion. They've got a cornerstone for the temple of God and the people of God. You can go to that faith. You don't even have to believe if you don't want to. No. God chose Christ. Christ and Christ alone has the stamp of approval as God the Father's cornerstone for the church. But even so, third... This is part of Peter's point. The builders, notice the builders rejected Christ as the cornerstone. In this, he's talking about the Jews. The Jews who had the blueprint for the kingdom of God, the Jews who had the word of God to begin with, the Jews who knew God to start with, when God came to them in Christ, they rejected him. He's not perfect. According to our documents, he's not perfect. We can't certify him as perfect. They become so far removed from knowing God, they didn't recognize God when he showed up. And they rejected God's chosen, precious cornerstone. Peter goes on and expands that. He says, now, now anyone outside of the church, anyone outside of faith, anyone outside of acknowledging that Christ is who God says he is, stumbles over that cornerstone. The Apostle Paul would speak to this in the letter of 1 Corinthians and he, he specifies the Jews and the Greeks stumble over Christ. The term translated stumble over or trip over gives us our English word scandal. That to those who have a perfectly packaged notion of how God will behave and who God is and, and what it means to be religious, for those who prefer to, to, to certify God according to their own religions, when they meet Jesus, they stumble over him. He's a scandal to them. They don't, they don't get that. He's, he's the chief cornerstone for you, the church. He's the stumbling block for those who do not believe. Why? Because they can't accept that God's great king, the Lord of the universe, the Son of God, would live as a carpenter, die as a criminal on a cross. They can't accept that he's been raised from the grave. And that's what certifies him as the Savior of the world. And everything God promised is fulfilled in Christ, the cornerstone. I want to unpack this just a little bit more. There are two features that apply to you and me. Because in, in, in Peter's image, you and I are the spiritual stones that now God is using to build the building for which the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Every believer in Christ comes to Christ in faith and becomes a building in the temple. God's building, God's structure. So there are two features here, and that's the first one. You have a new place. 
for, for Christians that are rejected by the world, for Christians that, especially those he was writing to, that are pushed out of their homes in Rome and they have fled to Asia Minor and they're, they're displaced people now in their persecution, to those Christians, Peter says, no, you have a new place. You live in the house of God. You're the people of God. You are the spiritual stones of the living God. And he is building for generations his house with you. The spiritual stones of God. How did you get there? Well, Peter says it's, it's those who believe. Uh, just as you are spiritual stones, it, it's not a heritage of a religion that brings you into the church, that makes you part of the church. It's your spiritual commitment to Jesus Christ, your faith in Christ. You repent of your sins and you believe instead of stumbling over the chief cornerstone, you embrace the chief cornerstone. You embrace him as your Savior. You follow him as your Lord. You cry out to him for salvation. You confess your sins to him and him alone because he died on the cross for you. And he's a living stone today and can save you. That's what brings you in. Peter says in verse 4 as we read, as you come to him. The phrase is literally coming to him. Coming to him. You remember Peter's perspective on salvation. You are saved. You're being saved. You will be saved. Now he speaks of that part where you are being saved. You, are, you have come to Christ. You've been saved. Now you're coming to him regularly to participate, to taste of the goodness of God. Participate in your salvation. Be a part of the spiritual building of God. Which brings us to the second feature. You have a new purpose. You have a new place. Sometimes you feel displaced. Sometimes you feel like people are rejecting you because of your faith. Never forget, you have a new place. You're in the family of God, the building of God. And never forget, because of that, you have a new purpose. First of all, you're building your life on the cornerstone. You're building your life on the cornerstone. That's why you're coming to him regularly. You know, the sad truth is, most Christians today, we view our salvation as an event, I got saved on such and such a day. You should know when you got saved. Don't misunderstand. And then we say, that's it. And this is where we get it wrong. We think, I came to Christ, so now I, I go do what I want to do. And then I, I came to Christ, I go do what I want to do, and then one day I go to heaven, and in between now and then I go to church. There's a lot of go stuff in there. But notice what Peter says. No, you are coming to him. The image is you are building your life on him now. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. Your life is wrapped up in the life of God. You're part of the, court. You're part of the living stones that, that build the church. So you come to him to be saved, but then you're coming to him regularly and saying, you are Lord of my life. What's on the menu for today? How do I handle this problem, this situation? Who do I witness to today? What do you want me to do today? You're my Lord. You come to him for your purpose. You come to him to build your life on the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. Then Peter, keeping that temple image, says also, you are a holy priesthood. You are a holy priesthood. Now, what does that mean? Here we are, 21st century American Christians, and we don't really have a reference to the priesthood. Now, some of you have come out of the Roman Catholic faith. You came to Christ. You're, you're here in an evangelical church that is Southern Baptist. You have kind of a grasp of that priesthood. A lot of us don't really get it. So, so let me see if I can help out. 
Remember, the point of a priest is to mediate your relationship with God. That is the purpose, main purpose of a priest. So the function of the priest is to mediate your relationship with God. So the implication of a priest is that without that mediation, you can't have a relationship with God. I'm not your priest. I'm your pastor. And here's why. Notice he says you are a priesthood. In the old days, the people of God had a priesthood. The priests mediated that relationship. It started with Aaron in the Old Testament, way back all the way to Moses. The priest mediated that relationship. But it anticipated Jesus Christ coming to fulfill the priesthood completely. And now we don't have a priesthood, we are a priesthood. There's no mediator but Jesus Christ. So you get to come to Christ on your own. By your faith, not my faith, not your parents' faith, not your Sunday school teacher's faith, your faith. You trust Christ. You are part of the priesthood. And therefore you serve Christ faithfully as part of the temple of God. I'm going to let you in on something that I I let everybody in on in our new members class. And if you've taken our new members class, you know exactly where I'm going because it's the perfect opportunity to bring this up. But every time I bring it up in our new members class, I've been doing this for years and years and years, I'll have folks in the class, and I'll never, I'll never recall, a gentleman was in the class, and he said after I told him this, he said, I've been a Southern Baptist 45 years, and no one ever told me this. No one ever told me this. You see, the Bible teaches what's called the priesthood of the believer, just as I just explained, there is no priest between you and Christ. He is your great high priest. You have direct contact to him. So every Sunday morning, there is a picture of that in the church. Did you know that? We symbolize that powerful truth that there is no one between you and God. You come to him on faith. And in fact, today, we are symbolizing it like no other day. There is intentional that the elements of the Lord's Supper are on the floor in front of the pulpit, not behind the pulpit. Have you ever been in a church where they've been behind the pulpit? The symbol there is you've got to go through that priest or pastor to participate in the Lord's Supper. The great symbols of the sacrifice of Christ for you. But hey, we intentionally put it right there to let you know there is nobody between you and God. There is nobody between you and the sacrifice of Christ. You either believe in him or you reject him, but nobody's between you and him. That's your decision. When you receive Christ as your Savior, you acknowledge his death on the cross for you and his resurrection for you. I can't do that for you. You do it when you trust him as your Savior. You are a priesthood. And then last, because you are a priesthood, you sacrifice for Christ, spiritual sacrifices. Uh, the Lord's Supper eliminated the need for any other sacrifices for atonement. The Jews used to bring a sacrifice for atonement to the temple. In God's providence, the temple is gone because believers in Christ are the temple. And Jesus Christ was the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world, sacrificed for the sins of the world. So now, 
God's not looking for those physical sacrifices. You don't need to bring a perfect lamb to the church to burn on an altar for God to accept you. You come to Christ, the Lamb of God. He, he accepts you through Him. You have access through Christ. Now it's your spiritual sacrifices of service that matter. Every day you live your life for Christ, that's your sacrifice. That's your sacrifice. Every person you share the gospel with, that's your sacrifice. Every time you stand firm for your faith, even in the face of persecution, that's your sacrifice. Every time you apply the word of God to your life, you are offering to God spiritual sacrifices. The Apostle Paul was even more pointed about this in Romans chapter 12. He said to come and sacrifice yourself willingly and regularly on the altar of God because that is your spiritual act of worship. Now what he means by that and what Peter also presumes in that is that you offer your will to God. You don't get up every morning and say, hey God, I'm going to do what I want to do and I'll let you know if I need you. No, you get up every morning and say, I belong to Christ. I sacrifice my life for Christ. Whatever you bring into my life, I will honor and exalt Christ my Savior. Because I am a living stone built into the temple of God, part of the priesthood of God, resting on the living stone, the cornerstone, the only one that God accepts. That's why your faith in Christ is so important. When you trust Christ as your Savior, you're acknowledging his death on the cross for you, his resurrection, his life today. You're acknowledging that he and he alone is God's chosen cornerstone. And you trust Christ and you become part of that spiritual temple of God to give those spiritual sacrifices to God. Uh, next month, my wife and I will celebrate 38 years of wedded bliss. It's been bliss for me. I can't speak for her, but it's been 38 years. Uh, and, and it always reminds me of those early days. You know, if you, and some of you are still in those early days. Some of you are remembering those early days. Some of you are going, what are you talking about? But anyway, when, I, when we fell in love and I was smitten, I said, I want to marry this girl. So I started thinking in terms of an engagement ring. Turns out, diamonds are expensive. But I really felt like I could probably afford to get something that could actually be seen with the naked eye. If I, if I really concentrated and saved some money. So I got in touch with a friend of mine, a gentleman I'd grown up with who was a jeweler in Winston-Salem at the time. And I said, help me out here. And, and he said, well, you got to learn some things about diamonds. And I said, well, I know there's a carrot thing in there. He said, well, that's not the only thing. He said, there's color, there's cut, and there's quality. And then there's carrot. And I said, what are you talking about? So I got a short lesson in how diamonds uh, are graded. Color, cut, quality, and carrots. It, it all goes together. So saved up my money, purchased the diamond. And when I purchased the ring for Kim, my jeweler friend gave me a certificate. And on that certificate, it says the color, the cut, the quality, and the carrot of the diamond. I thought, well, that's nice. And I filed the certificate away. Because you know what? I, I, I'm grateful for the certificate. I think it's a good thing. It's, it's filed somewhere. I, I know where it is. But for me, 
the stone was not about what the world said its value is. For me, the stone was about the relationship. The value of the stone was what it symbolized about the relationship. The world says, sorry, we can't certify Jesus. He's not good enough. To us, he's not worthy. God says he's precious because you can have a relationship with the living stone if you'll trust him as your savior. Never mind what the world says. They stumble over him. You, your life is built on him. And this church is full of living stones. And we build our salvation on the chief cornerstone, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Whether we are professing loudly or whether we're persecuted, we build our lives on the living stone. It's about Jesus. It's about the relationship. We're going to celebrate that relationship when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate the priesthood of the believer when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate what God has done for us in Christ. You are personally going to celebrate his death and resurrection that you have believed in for your salvation. If you're in this room today and you're not a member of First Baptist Church, but you know that you are saved in Christ, I invite you to participate with us. But see, this is a distinctly Christian activity. Jesus said for believers to participate in the Lord's Supper, to remember what he had done and what we had believed, what we do believe. So if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior today, I, I want to uh, ask you to be courageous enough to let the bread go by, to let the cup go by, to acknowledge the fact that you've never trusted Christ or maybe you're not sure if you're saved. But the good news is, is at the end of the hour, I'm going to give you an opportunity to trust Christ as your Savior, to become part of the living stones built on the cornerstone of Christ. So I'm going to pray for us and the deacons are going to come forward and we're going to serve the Lord's Supper this morning. While the elements are going around, I want to encourage you to let God deal with your heart. You're a believer in here. You're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. But there could be something that God wants you to deal with before you take the bread and take the cup. So pray quietly where you are as the elements are passed. And then I'll lead us in taking the bread and I'll lead us in taking the cup. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we transition into this time, God, of celebrating the Lord's Supper, celebrating what Christ has done for us on the cross. We transition into this time, Father, where we acknowledge our faith in Christ. And for some of us, God, I pray you would renew that trust. You would renew that faith. faith. You, you would remind us, God, that things are not always as they appear to be. And we trust you, God, for what we cannot see. We trust you for our salvation. We trust you for our future. We trust you for our relationships. We trust you, God, for everything in front of us and everything behind us. We trust you. So, God, let this time be a time of worship and celebration. We remember what you've done for us through Jesus on the cross. We remember that he's alive today. Also, God, I pray you'd search our hearts. If there is sin we need to confess, if there's something between you and us, God, show us that, and that in the quiet of the moment, God, we would confess that sin. We would be clean before you as we receive this bread and as we receive this cup. So God, work in our midst today here and at home. And I pray the Holy Spirit would show us, Father, in, in a fresh way what Christ has done for us.
And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray.